Well, hello and welcome to the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor podcast. I'm Andrew Dick, an attorney with Paul Render. Today I'm joined uh, by Michelle Mader and Mark Ferguson from Encura Consulting for part two of a two-part series on financial and regulatory trends affecting healthcare providers. If you haven't listened to episode one with Michelle and Mark, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that episode first. In that episode, we covered healthcare M&A trends, private equity trends in healthcare, and regulatory trends impacting healthcare providers. It was a great discussion. I learned a lot, and I hope you, uh, you will as well. For today's episode, we're going to continue our discussion about hospital finances with a specific focus on profit margins, staffing issues, and other trends impacting the physical footprint for healthcare providers. Uh, Michelle, Mark, thanks for joining me again. Pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So we wanted to start off this um, this part two of this session talking sort of about at a snapshot on where the current financial status is. So if you listen to the first podcast we did, we talked about sort of this evolving trend over this year, this year being 2022, on the month-to-month variation in our finances. They're up, they're down, et cetera. But really, um, what we're seeing now that we've got two quarters behind us and we're sitting in September is the fact that this whole year will probably go down as one of the worst years in healthcare in our known generation from that standpoint. Um, and what's more important is not just what we are doing, um, both historically and currently today, but where the projections are. So when you talk about real estate capital and you talk about capital dissemination in the future, right? It's really about what all the financing thinks is going to happen, right? How do we make those returns in the future? So what I want to focus on today is a little bit about where the soothsayers are looking uh, forward. And if this is a little bit of a wet blanket, I apologize. I'm going to try to be as realistic as possible and be positive in that realism. But it is um, for, you know, a heads up and a spoiler report, uh, it's a little negative. So when you look at what's happening, uh, Kaufman Hall actually got commissioned by the AHA last week. So this was released on September 15th, so last Thursday. So a couple days old on when they, uh, what they think the, the projections look like, right? What are the scenarios? And they looked at two. One was an optimistic one and one was a pessimistic one. And I will, and again, spoiler report, they're both negative, right? So I don't know how much is pessimistic versus optim, uh, being optimistic, but they're both negative. But essentially um, on the positive side, which is the least negative, uh, we're looking at margins being down across the board in uh, legacy healthcare, healthcare systems, 37% compared to pre-pandemic years. So these are operating margins negative. And the p- pessimistic projections show almost 133%, right? That that means we're closing facilities if that continues on those lines. More than half the hospitals are projected to have negative margins this year. And uh, those range from anywhere from 37 to 53% and as high as 68% negative. So if you're seeing things in the headlines like safety net hospitals are closing, this is where this is coming from. And and the big one that just hit the Southeast most recently in the last couple of weeks is the Atlanta Medical Center, which was one of two trauma centers in the metro area of Atlanta and um, had almost 500 beds, something like 450 beds, and they're closing it um, just because of these. So, you know, what's driving those margin swings and the decline essentially are expenses. And this is both broken down into labor expenses as well as non-labor expenses. So labor expenses have increased by 86 billion. That's a big B, right? It's almost um, over last year for 20 to 21, or 20 last year, 20 to 21 to this year, it's increased by $135 billion. Guys, these aren't 
new FTEs. These aren't new staffing. This is just the expense to keep doing what you were doing last year. Um, those are huge numbers. Contract labor, which is what everybody's talking about right now, right, is up nearly 5% higher than pre-pandemic levels. These are unsustainable numbers and kind of, and not kind of big, they're huge. Um, the non-labor expense is, is not as big, but just as important. So it's increasing this year by about $50 billion. Supplies are projected to grow another $11 billion, mostly due to inflation. What was interesting to me is that the all-expense categories, which are mostly drugs and supplies in your financials and in your client's financials, are up 20 to 25%. They're not up seven, eight, they're up a quarter, right? They're huge on that front. So really hospitals are facing some serious financial tolls. And what's interesting is that they're looking not advertly, but very directly for federal help. And I think this is one of the reasons why the AHA commissioned Kaufman Hall to look at this half-year study is to put it into the inboxes of every Senate, House, governor we've got, right, to show them what's happening if, they are, if they're not paying attention to it. But what's really concerning from our standpoint, and again, I'm trying not to be a wet blanket here, but just the pessimistic scenario isn't unrealistic. When you look at how that's broken down, that's, you know, looking at variant surges within COVID, we're expecting that already this fall, and we're gearing up for it as an industry into the winter. Um, we're still having, on average, about 400 deaths across the country per month from COVID for various reasons. We keep seeing, in, in, you know, expense growth. The feds keep trying to hedge that on the economic side with interest rates, but they keep growing. Uh, we are seeing length of stay, stay increases. So sicker patients are delaying care. So by the time they get to us, they're so much sicker. Um, you know, most health systems are looking to payer negotiations to make up at least a portion of that data, but they're losing their non, um, their non-commercial, or they're basically, they need to increase their non-commercial payers. And from that front. And so even locally here in North Carolina, there's a huge push to expand Medicaid because they're losing in the commercial market um, and just in, in general. So all of these variables are, are kind of a painting a picture that we're really going to be in the situation, we think, for the next two to three years. Right. There's not a silver bullet that's out there that says COVID is going to be gone. Well, it's gone. Right. There's not a silver bullet that says staff are going to want to return to work or that the environment is going to get, immediately get better. Um, and so we're looking at this kind of moving forward and what does this mean for real estate? What does this financial picture mean for capital deployment and mostly capital discernment? How are health systems going to spend their precious cash and where are they going to spend it? Yeah, that was, that was great, Michelle. Uh, very good summary of what's going on in the healthcare industry. Uh, tremendous financial pressure on the major healthcare systems, what I consider to be the more traditional players uh, across the country, the ones we're working with, and, and probably we have some overlapping clients. Uh, I'm hearing just over the past few days uh, about the tremendous financial pressure. They're all looking for ways to reduce expenses, find ways to operate more efficiently. And, and more importantly, they're just really struggling with the staffing demands. How do you find uh, nurses to come work? Many are exploring uh, nursing schools, which I think you're going to talk about here in a few minutes, or both of you will, uh, how can they create interest in nursing as a profession? Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the lack of nurses in the industry right now. Michelle, Mark, one of you, um, let's talk just a little bit about that. I mean, there's some pretty staggering statistics with retirements, um, registered nurses who have, who have chosen to take what I will consider to be an alternative career path where they leave 
a, a patient or clinical setting to do something else within a healthcare organization outside of a patient's room. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, uh, Andrew, you alluded to the fact that some of the issues that we're having with the staffing crisis in healthcare right now are kind of foundational. Um, and, and I would suggest that, you know, these are issues that we've had in place for almost a decade. This average age of a nurse in her early 50s or his early 50s um, is something that we've been talking about as a cause for concern for a number of years now. The tremendous attrition in first-year nurses, also an issue we've been talking about for more than a decade. And, you know, it's interesting to look at the COVID push on this. Um, and the question as to whether COVID exacerbated this situation or caused it, um, you know, Robert, probably there's a lot of different opinions on that we could debate, but um, we want to just kind of break down some of those pieces. But I think here's the big takeaway on the staffing piece, and we're going to cover this in some detail. It's not just that the cost of the staff has increased, and it has increased a lot. The big concern is that we are not able to staff beds and ORs and ED. So the revenue implications of the staffing crisis may be the larger financial concern, and it may be systemic. So Michelle, maybe we could break down some of the pieces of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, as Mark alluded to, this we don't believe that this was pandemic-induced, right? That COVID didn't usher in this, this issue. Um, it accelerated it. And so we had heart conditions to begin with. Well before 2020, you know, we had nursing shortages on and off due to various factors, um, economic downturns, waves of retiring nurses, increased healthcare demand. And there was already stressors on this profession to begin with. And we're saying nursing, you know, yes, it includes RN, but guys, these are your, you know, certified nursing assistants, right? These are your APPs. These are people who are in direct patient care. This even extends, you know, into the people who clean the beds and those who serve food. And even in the outpatient arena, your techs, your OR techs, and the people, your registration, and, you know, your clerks, I mean, they're across the board. So we're going to say nursing is a broad professional umbrella, but kind of moving forward, but it's sort of all encompassing into those areas. So, you know, when, when March of 2020 hit, right, and we, we all went into work mode at home and we all were managing kids at home, you know, the, the healthcare professions had to keep going to the job, right? And in fact, they were on the front lines of the job. And so they had all the stressors we had as the normal general public that were morphing our day-to-day -day work activities and morphing our businesses, except they also had those additional stressors of showing up and, and managing this. And so what we saw was an acceleration of what was already there structurally. So retirements were sort of outpacing new interests. People were like, I'm out. I can't go in for various reasons. I'm just going to retire. And when the average age is 52, that's not a hard leap, right? And we had huge demands coming in, not just from COVID, but really sick people, which, you know, the aging and the chronic disease and the older people getting COVID who put them into the hospital and, 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 you know, their demise, and then just inadequate workforce support, right? We had ratios that were one to five in nursing units, one to seven in nursing units. Um, and when you have really sick COVID patients, that's a really hard 12-hour shift, right? And so those were just all the additional stressors that we just don't think about as the general public or particularly in real estate because we're not on the front lines. We hear about it, but to actually talk to these professionals it was really demanding. And, you know, we mentioned last time in the previous podcast, just the rate of burnout, right? Just the exhaustion, the mental health, the rate of burnout, et cetera. We're actually working with a client right now whose sick hours are as high as their PTO. That's, I mean, that's looking by profession. And that's kind of crazy when you think about it. But, you know, we're seeing this increase of demand and the severe lack of supply. From that standpoint, there is not enough of this profession to handle the demand coming. You know, and so the question is, is how big is that gap, right? What are we actually talking about here? 
So the American Nurses Association um, reported <coughs> that there are more than 100,000 registered nursing jobs um, across the country that are open right now, right? Over 100,000, and that they're projected to have 500,000 retire this year, right? So we're going to have 500 go out of the market, and we already have 100,000 that are open in the market. What does that look like, right? And what was interesting even more to me is if you look at this at a global standpoint, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics projects that 200, on average, about 200,000 annual openings for registered nurses will be consistent in the next 10 years, so from 2021, 2022, up into 2030, so the next decade, with that projected to grow every year by 9%, right? So if you think about just the exodus that is happening with the average age, the work environment, their physical stressors, with what they're projecting, the growth with the baby boomers and being sick and using hospital services because they're not in those age cohorts that require hospital-based care. And then the lack of influx of the young coming into the profession, it's a pretty dire situation. And so when you look at those accelerated retirements, they're cashing out early, right? They're just saying, I'm either going to do something different now. I'm going to, you know, look to do something less. Um, that's less physically demanding. And so they're coming out of the traditional environments. And this includes ambulatory, right? Ambulatory is not immune. Um, there is the need to have a lot of flexibility. And when you've got a Monday through Friday, seven to five operation where you're running lean, you can't afford a call out, right? But the same stressors are there economically that are here. And unfortunately, and, and this is kind of very sad, but we had more than 1,200 nurses die during COVID, from COVID. Right. So that's that's a small number compared to what we're talking about. But there is real fear and there is real sickness and there's a real loss there due to the pandemic, just like the rest of us experience, but just added to the problem. Traveler nurse uh, situation has also been a really interesting part of and a very visible part of the staffing crisis in healthcare. Um, this is one of the first data points that we all watched that, you know, a year ago when traveling nurses were making eight, nine thousand dollars a week. Um, you know, you immediately thought to yourself, well, there's no way that's sustainable. I think the really interesting underlying issue there is that it felt like there were traveling nurses, and that was a group of people. Now, any nurse anywhere can be a traveling nurse. We were just on the phone this morning an hour ago with a client who was talking about the fact that they have traveling nurse meetings every week to make sure that what they're offering traveling nurses is competitive not just in their city or in their region, but nationally. This particular um, clinical leader said that Becker's about once a week travels, um, publishes traveling nurse rates generally where it's going up, where it's going down. And the nurses in their Midwestern city are more than happy to jump on an airplane and go to Florida or Texas or California. And the rates are high enough where that's just a business decision for them. So when you think about trying to staff a nursing floor on a week-to-week -week basis and putting together OR schedules and how, we're, how you're going to staff your ED, think about how complicated that is and how dynamic that is. And so we'll continue to see this play out. I don't know. You know, this could be a forever situation. Um, it feels like when the floor nursing salaries rise enough where that's, you know, no, no longer worth the lifestyle of traveling, um, there were certainly traveling nurses that selected the lifestyle, but that's not the way it feels now. It just feels like a much bigger thing. So just another piece of the market we're watching closely. I, I yeah, agree, Mark. I, I, one, one second, Michelle. I mean, I agree, Mark. We, we used to think of the traveling nurses as this group of maybe young professionals who are 
eager to go to a different market to work and experience living in San Diego, for example. Now it's turned into something, in my opinion, that's very different. It's, it's a movement of sorts to capitalize on the shortage in some ways. And these nurses are just making an incredible amount of money. Sorry, Michelle, go ahead. No, no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. So the question is, is okay, well, if, if we've got a supply issue, right, clearly have a demand and an increasing demand. If we have a supply issue, then how do we boost the supply, right? How do we get more nurses? And, and again, I'm using that loosely, but how do we get more health professionals into the profession? And unfortunately, we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot. Um, for the last couple of several years, the last decade, if not two decades, we haven't paid attention to this. And so when the average age is 52, right, that's telling, right? We've had at least 20 years of not pushing this on the younger generations um, and with them. So we're having a lack of training the trainers. So when your brain drain happens at those age courts and they leave the profession or they just are taking two or three shifts a week, the, the opportunity for mentoring and to encouraging the younger generations to get in the profession is dwindling. And we're seeing this with schools, right? A lot of nursing schools are community-based, right? They're not big, huge academic behemoths. They're small, community-focused, county-focused, city-focused nursing schools, and they just haven't had the funds, right? They're not getting additional funding for this. They, they have faculty shortages in and of themselves, right? Again, age, average age is 52. They don't have enough teachers, um, so therefore they can't only can cap, you know, they have to cap their enrollment, so they can't take all the students that they want, assuming that they're there and, and wanting to join. Um, their classroom space is limited, and here's the big kicker. Because of the financials of our current, you know, healthcare industry and the providers, they are really pulling back on clinical sites of training because it takes a preceptor and it takes a mentor and it takes you using your existing staff to be able to train those who are coming through on a preceptor set, right? And so we just have, uh, there are less and less of those organizations who have the ability, not not the willingness, because I think they all want to, but have the ability to be able to do that. And so we just don't have enough across the country. So it's, it's you know, it's almost like the chicken and the egg effect, that we need more in the profession, yet we can't fuel it enough fast enough on the other side and put the resources to make that happen. You know, and, and there's some other things that are happening, you know, in the environment. We were really watching earlier this year, I'm sure you saw it, if you follow the healthcare feed kind of coming through the media, that, you know, there's increased liability. So if you were following the, the Rhonda Vault case, right, she, it was criminal, criminal liability instead of just gross negligence, right? And instead of just taking away her license, she was looking at jail time. Well, if you think of all the stressors that are happening and you look at a new nurse coming out of high school, coming out of college, who wants to do that, are they, is the compensation and their passion going to supersede the potential liability if they're exhausted at a 15, 12, 15 hour shift and make a wrong decision? Are they going to go to jail? Right. And so it was a huge deterrent. If you looked at the American Nursing Association and Hospital Association, they really came to her defense because the precedent it set really sent shockwaves throughout all the recruiting efforts and all the talent efforts and even existing nurses going, what the heck? I'm out. Right. There's no way that I'm putting my life and my family on the line for this job. And so it was really um, disturbing and really poor timing. Right. I mean, it couldn't have happened at a worse at a worse time, whether you agree or not with the verdict, it, it, it did set a precedent. Well, and we've got some microeconomic things going on in the U.S. economy that are also exacerbating this problem, as if it doesn't have enough issues or right. enough challenges already. You know, a lot of our nurses moved from a clinical floor environment to an outpatient environment because the schedule is just, just more predictable with the COVID thing. No question pushed that along. Um, but we're also seeing things like hospital at home starting to rise. 
which feels to us like it could be very kind of medical technician centric. And as everybody probably knows, Amazon is now paying an hourly rate higher than many of our medical technicians across the country. So we're now seeing a lot of these um, other industries, especially industrial industries that are paying a lot for um, an hourly wage employee, great benefits, very predictable hours, the ability to sign up for different shifts, not just competing within healthcare themselves, but competing outside of healthcare. And, and you know, I, again, if we cannot figure out this training method, you know, I mean, I think a year ago we would have said, well, hospitals are going to jump in and they're going to retrain their nurses like they used to. That made perfect sense, right? Look at the expense side of it. But Michelle's right. You've got to take your own staff to do it. That's shooting yourself in your foot. And, and as you've heard us talk about, their needs in this crisis is right in front of them on a weekly basis. So, you know, it's like trying to solve the battle that's in front of you as to, you know, figure out the war. Um, you know, it's just a very complicated and moving thing. But we shouldn't forget that there's other pressures on the general economy that are against making this more of an issue. Yeah, those are great points. Uh, it, it is a real challenge. And I, I think the health systems are still trying to figure it out. Um, you know, some of them have partnered with universities to offer discounted education for nurses. That seems to provide a little bit of an incentive. I'm not sure that that really solves the problem. Some are trying to stand up their own nursing programs. But as you mentioned, Mark, that can be a real challenge because it takes staffing and a lot of resources to do that. Um, it's tough right now. Um, well, talk a little bit about, I mean, one of the challenges is just the cost associated with staffing. And how do you pay for that? Well, a lot of these health systems generate revenue through government payers by treating patients uh, and they get paid through Medicare, Medicaid, and those rates haven't kept up, in my opinion, with the current cost of care. Talk a little bit about that, payer rates, some of the pressures right now, not just with government payers, but even private payers like insurance companies. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of us just kind of forget is that we look at healthcare as a normal business right? They're the big behemoth in downtowns. They've got neighborhood hospitals in my backyard. I can go to my neighborhood freestanding ED. They're a business, right? They're branded. They look the same. They act like a business. But in reality, they're not. Um, they're a one-way funded organization for public good. And whether you're for-profit or not-for-profit, you work under the same set of rules for the most part out of the tax incentives from that standpoint. So when 80% of your pricing is dictated to you by the federal government, meaning that most community hospitals, about 80% of their revenue comes from Medicaid or Medicare, they set your payments. So if I was operating, and I'm just going to you know, be simple, if I was operating an ice cream shop and the cost of milk went up, right, I would pass that along in my price of ice cream, right? Unfortunately, right now, the cost to provide healthcare is going up and they have no ability to pass that along to their consumers because their consumers are insurance companies than the federal government, right? It's not the end user. And so when that happens at a very, you know, minutia, um, that's very telling. And what's interesting is that this year, the final rule for Medicare inpatient payments included a 4.3 increase um, in that proposed rule. And in fact, the lobbying was so strong that it increased more than a percentage point from the original proposal, right? So we were able to, as an industry, say that is just not enough. But they are still advocating, the industry is still advocating that that's just not even covering inflation, right? That's up at seven and a quarter or 8% right now over wages. 
And so what's interesting is CMS comes out and says, but we think this is essentially all we can afford if you read between the lines. And by the way, it's the biggest increase since 1998, right? So this is the largest increase since 1998 that we are giving the healthcare industry and we're still saying it is not enough. And so it is what it is. And so now we have to look at the cost side of the ledger to kind of reduce and that has a big impact on real estate, right? And how we use space and how we invest our capital kind of moving forward. So, you know, what levers do you have if you're studying with these, you know, if you've got this set of cards, what levers do you start to pull to change that outcome or to make things a little bit better? And a lot of them are hitting up their payers. The, the challenge is, is that most of your payer contracts are two to three years, right? They're not renegotiated every year. It's just too laborious to do that. And so you're kind of in some instances and in some markets stuck with those rates that are non-negotiable and can't be changed for at least the next 24 or 36 months. And so that they're going and, and trying to lobby just for a 2 to 3% increase, but they're combating this, right? The, the payer looks at you and says, I hear you. I hear your cost. I hear your acuity. I see your length of stay. We know the volume. We understand that the impact you're having on our, our consumers, which is, you know, the, the patients themselves who are on our panels. But if we give you an increase, we're going to have to give everybody an increase. So it's, it's, you know, everybody, it's almost as if we need to go forward from a united front, right, that says, hey, as an industry, you are going to tank us if we don't see these increases and we can't pass these along to you kind of moving forward. So that's where we are right now is that they're looking for any way to be able to move that dial and they're looking at the payers and right now the payers aren't anting up, um, you know, anywhere near where we need them to and for a lot of good reasons. They're a business. Yeah. That's one of my concerns. Uh, you know, we see these increases and we're usually seeing increases, you know, two, three, four percent. Um, but but the cost of, of operating those health health facilities over the past couple of years has went up tremendously, double jit digits in most most cases. Um, I just think it's going to take years if the payers don't step up for these health facilities to really catch up and to really cover their cost. And, and I think you're right, uh, Michelle, Mark, that that I think we're going to see some closures um, and I think it's going to wake up the industry. I mean, you may not have that big health system down the street anymore that used to have. I mean, Atlanta is, is the perfect example. I mean, when that made headlines, huge safety net, uh, level one trauma center. I mean, that community is going to suffer if uh, they don't receive some additional funding or... An, I think it's a really complex problem to solve um, when when you're in a major metro area and you don't have uh, when you lose one of your uh, level one trauma centers. So let, let's switch gears uh, quickly. Let's talk about the implications of all these financial pressures on the the physical footprint of hospitals and healthcare facilities. What can providers do? What should they be thinking about? Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing to see the way this plays out. You know that a lot of our practice is focused on real estate, and I know that a lot of your listeners are focused on that as well, Andrew. Um, you know, it's, it is a little, I, I want to preface it by saying it's a little hard to tell. Um, it does feel to us like it will play out mostly on the inpatient environment, because um, as you look at a cost model to pay for an operational expense or a building expense, I think it will more readily play out in the inpatient space. But we think it's going to be a refocus, and, and we know that there's been a lot of discussion about this for a long time, a refocus on really making nursing floors, OR platforms, EDs, efficient platforms, operationally efficient, 
I think one of the more interesting things to look at is if we have a real limitation on nurses, um, what does it mean for rethinking about the way a nursing floor is laid out? Do we really distribute support um, structures like clean and soil utility and meds and things like that to shorten walking paths? I think it brings the idea of nurse servers back into play. As some of you have um, been in kind of the design realm for a while know that we were toying with the idea of having individual supply rooms in patient rooms. Um, there were certain hospitals that tried this. They found that the supply chain side of this, the PAR level side of it, was just plain too expensive. But when you think about how expensive staff is now, this hunting and gathering has got to stop. This idea that we're going to spend 13% of our time, I think that was the data that came out of the last, how nurses spend their time, 13% of their time hunting and gathering, um, that is going to have to stop, um, especially when, when it's mostly an RN staff, a very, very expensive component of, of, um, of the staff and one that we just won't have enough, uh, enough people. I'll be interested to see what happens with distributed nursing, nurse substations, especially substations between each two rooms. Um, you know, some of the feedback from nurses has been that's very isolating, but spreading nurses out that thin when we have two call-in sick may not work. And the other thing is, um, as we think about hospital at home, as we think about these longer length of stays, because remember, at the same time we're dealing with a staffing crisis, we're dealing with sicker patients in the hospitals. We're seeing, seeing that in case mix index. We're seeing that in length of stay. So the idea that we're training the family may be a good enough reason to put nurses back in the patient room. So I, I think all these, I think there are far-reaching ramifications of, of this for the physical footprint. Um, and, and I think, again, it'll play out in, in some of our more intensive inpatient environments. Show anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I think there's also going to be a heightened um, sense for those of you who are in real estate and who are listening around what you are planning on building or planning on leasing or planning on locating geographically around safety, right? This is really a big issue. And if you're recruiting nurses, if you think about their working environment, safety is a huge <laughs> issue. So the American Nurses Association reported that one out of four nurses are assaulted on the job. Guys, that's 25%, right, essentially. And that OSHA reported just came out last year. OSHA reports that, oh, now this is OSHA, so it's covering a whole bunch of industries and, and a whole bunch of different uh, environments. About 75% of their workplace assaults are annually in healthcare and in social care settings, right? So when you think about that and you think about some of these safety net hospitals and you think about some of these urban facilities and even the rural facilities, this has been a hush-hush conversation within healthcare culture for years. I mean, I remember 20 years ago being inside of a hospital and having this conversation with the OR, right, about the verbal abuse and, and some physical abuse, throwing things across, you know, just anger management challenges. That was 20 years ago. But as you look at where we are with a crisis, if that happens, these nurses are going to be like, I'm out, right? I'm, I'm not even going to give you a two-week notice. I'm just out um, because I'm not going to work in these environments, and particularly the younger recruits coming in who don't have maybe, you know, who don't have the patience for that or, you know, just kind of put up with it. So I think as we look at real estate, where you put things, the parking lots, the safety protocols, the internal culture, the things that we can design into the physical environment to, you know, reduce those things outside of just accidents are going to be big. And it's going to be a big recruiting issue. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And we shouldn't forget that some of this is just kind of blocking and tackling around a work environment in general. Nursing is a hard job. It is a hard job physically, and it's a hard job emotionally, and it's not getting easier. 
So the idea of just having appropriate task lighting, of having some natural light places for nurses to step away, I just don't think that's ever been more important than it is right now. Right. But these are the big, you know, when you think about how healthcare is currently set up today structurally, when you think about sort of what's driving the cost in the current financial situation, right, there are some things that we can manage, um, you know, contracts with third-party purchase services, things like that. There's only going to be so much pressure we're going to be able to do before they go to the next customer because it's more advantageous, right? So some of those costs are just fixed. The staffing is up, right? It is going to be, the, the outside world is not going to come in and say, we're going to fix this for you, right? We can make you more automated. We can help you with EHRs. We can make your nursing pools and agencies bigger. You know, we can do all of those things, but it's going to have to be fixed from the inside out. And this is something that I think is a challenge in today's environment. As they look at their finances, they're going down to the top 10% in staffing ratios, right? They're lean, really lean, and they're doing a ton of interim. And for every travel nurse that's put in, you're starting onboarding again. Right. The reason why we hate them, not hate them, but the reason why we hate to churn them so much is because every new face that comes onto your unit, you're spending the first one to two hours just showing them where everything is. Right. Assuming that they can start. So think about your errors. Think about your liability. Think about the sentinel events that are possible and just the compliance issues. It has a reverberating impact across the organization and has a cost, a big cost um, to it. So this is something that we are really focused on trying to fix within and the clients are really focused on, too. Unfortunately, I think we're going to have to r- ride the waves of financial volatility um, for a while before we settle out somewhere. Yeah, and, and Michelle, some of those issues aren't necessarily unique to healthcare. I mean, you know, the business world in general, we'll sh- we're struggling with onboarding, re- you know, retention, uh, providing a great work environment and, and great culture, um, all things that I'm sure health, health systems are working on right now as well to try to retain those, those nurses. Well, as we wrap up, let's talk just a minute about, you know, what type of advice you'd give to someone in the C-suite right now, uh, either at a hospital, a medical group, or a health system, you know, things to think about over the next few years. Um, anything come to mind? Yeah, you know, I think, first of all, is the acknowledgement that this is complicated, right? There are so many factors that are hitting us, um, and everyone that we talk to and all of our clients are just very lean, right? We're doing a ton of interim staffing, those types of things. But if you're trying to move 10% in net margin or EBITDA, you're going to need some help, right? You're just really going to need some help. So maybe that's self-serving on Mark and I's point, but what we're really saying is that this takes both manpower, right, that you may or may not have, and understanding through that what's happening in your local environment, but what's also happening nationally, because you're not immune. And like we just talked about the regional, they think they're being competitive regionally with their pricing of contracts for nursing. And in reality, they're competing nationally, right? And so it's, it's taking that perspective. But really, um, you know, the advice I would have is make sure you have the right skill set. Make sure you're bringing people to the table who can look at this comprehensively and look at it as a complete solution package and not a one-off. Because if we're just playing one-offs all the time, we just exacerbate the financial situation. And that's where the healthcare industry has been for the last several years. Is they're in triage mode, right? They're just trying to deal with the fire that's in front of them. So, um, yeah, I completely agree with that. And I would suggest we're not to the end of that Correct. that that phase in, in healthcare. Well, Michelle, Mark, this was terrific. Uh, always enjoy talking with both of you. Um, thanks for the discussion today. Um, in our podcast notes, we'll we'll have information about Michelle and Mark and uh, Incura Consulting. Um, thanks to our listeners uh, for, for tuning in on your Apple or Android device. 
uh, leave us feedback. Um, we always want to know what our listeners are looking for, what they like, um, what they want to hear more about. Uh, we also publish a, a weekly update on healthcare real estate. Um, if you follow me on LinkedIn, uh, you can, uh, you'll have more information about that weekly update and you can subscribe to uh, the update via email. Thanks. <laughs>